Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I want to talk this morning about the Syrian refugee crisis and what I believe should be our response to it. Now, I don't like to deal with political topics, but to me, this is a biblical topic. You know, I'll deal with things like abortion and homosexuality, even those are political. They are biblical, so... Uh, this is a biblical thing to me, very much so. It's a very hot topic. we got believers lining up on both sides of this. And, and I just want to ask everybody this morning to stop and ask ourselves a question. What does the Bible teach that our response should be? Because I think that's all that really matters. Not get our emotions all involved, not join with our political side, but just have to stop and say, as Christians, as followers of Yeshua the Christ, what is the teaching of Scripture? How do we line up under this? If you watch any news, the stories and images of the Syrian refugee crisis have flooded the news, confronting us with the heartbreaking reality of the humanitarian disaster. These people have nowhere to go. They they been bombed out of their houses, they're fleeing from war, they're trying to save their lives. Hundreds and thousands of desperate human beings fleeing airstrikes, terror, violence from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, and beyond. We have probably all seen the image of the child washed up on a beach. I just can't even imagine as a parent, you're trying to flee to save your family. And they're piling on these boats and trying to escape and... A war zone, and you lose your child. More than 250,000 people have died since the violence broke out in Syria in 2011. They say at least 11 million people in a country of 22 million have fled their homes because they've been bombed out. There's no place to live. Syrians are now the world's largest refugee population. And the Syrian war, and particularly the rise of ISIS, in my opinion, has everything to do with the United States' actions dating back to 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq. I think we have destabilized the nation, which has given rise to ISIS in the first place. We've caused this refugee problem, I believe. And yet, out of the 4 million people who have fled the country, we have taken in 1,500. 1,500. And let's not forget that the United States is a society of immigrants who proclaim a commitment to welcoming desperate people in need of a new start. The words inscribed on the Statue of Liberty state this. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the hopeless, tempest-torn, to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. (laughs) The United States is a nation that prides itself on its Christian heritage. And a nation in which the vast majority of people, including elected leaders, self-identify as Christians. And I want to remind you this morning of what the Bible says should be our response to people in need. You may not like it. According to what I've seen on Facebook, not too many people will like it. But if you're a follower of Yeshua, 
You have to line up under it. Believers, we are to be identified by our love. John 13.35 says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's the identifying mark of a, of a disciple is his love. And, and you know, some of these Christian refugees, many of these Christian refugees are believers. And they need our help. Matthew 5.43, Yeshua said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I think Christians have adapted this, adopted this thing. You know, Yeshua was referring to rabbinic teaching that they supposed based on Scripture. But the Tanakh, you search the Tanakh in vain to find any precept which requires the Israelites to entertain any hatred towards their enemies. This is not a biblical teaching. They were teaching it. Just like I think Christians have adopted this today and they believe, yeah, we got to hate our enemies. Thou shalt hate your enemy was a rabbinic invention, pure and simple. The Tanakh taught them to love their neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now, I think this teaching is clear enough. The problem was that over time it had become twisted. The religious leaders had distorted the truth in order to accommodate themselves. Now, can you imagine that? Religious leaders distorting truth? They taught that you were to love only your neighbor. And of course, then you had to say, well, who is my neighbor? Who is it that I have to love? And some of the schools of the scribes and the Sadducees taught that fellow students of the law were your neighbors. So it was very limited. Scribes and Pharisees, they're your neighbors. Isn't that nice if you can just throw definitions out there the way you want it? Who's your neighbor? Well, I'll pick out the people I like. They'll be my neighbor. Some schools of the scribes and Pharisees taught that it was wider than that. They taught your neighbor was every blood relative. Every friend or person living in your locale, in their community, basically. Other schools taught that it was broader yet. They taught that every Jew was a neighbor. But Jews only. No person could be a neighbor if they were not a Jew. In other words, they had to hate every person who was not a Jew. And the Jews clearly taught that. But some schools we were more liberal, and they taught that Gentile proselytes who had joined the Jewish faith were neighbors. This was the broadest school, the scribes and Pharisees. The most common teaching was that only good Jews were considered a neighbor. Publicans, harlots, any public sinner were positively excluded. Now, as a result of this teaching, they had to hate every person that was not a good Jew. The command to love your neighbor doesn't seem to mean much if you don't know who your neighbor is or if you can define neighbor however you want to do it. Well, a lawyer came and he tested Yeshua and he questioned him on this very thing, who was his neighbor, because he knew that he had to love his neighbor. But he said, okay, let's define this. Who is my neighbor? And Luke 10, 25, it says, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love Yahweh, your Elohim, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor 
as your salary. And he said to him, you've answered well. Do this as you will Wishing to justify himself, he said to Yeshua, now first of all, he said, do this and live because nobody's ever kept the law. All right? And he wanted to make, he, the guy didn't realize he was a sinner. So he's trying to help. you got to understand, you just do that and you're okay. Right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor just like yourself and you're good. Okay? So that shows us we're in trouble. Okay? That's the whole point of the law. But he says that he wanted to justify himself. So he says, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify his hatred. For publicans and sinners. He wanted to justify his school of thought. So he asked who his neighbor was in order to distinguish between those whom he loved and those who he hated. And he expected Yeshua to give the narrow view of the meaning of the word neighbor to mean scribes and Pharisees. He knew the law. He knew. He didn't know what it meant. Know what it said. And that's what so many people today, they know what the Bible says. But what does it mean? The scribe, the lawyer, was willing to justify himself as having earned salvation by strictly observing the law of loving God above all and loving his neighbor as himself. Well, Yeshua answered the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, with a parable. The Lord often taught in parables, and he gave him the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he said, Yeshua replied and said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. So here's a man on the side of the road, he's half dead, doesn't have his clothing, so we can't tell what cultural community he belonged to. Is he a Pharisee? Is he a priest? Is he a Roman? We don't know, and you're not supposed to know. That's the point here, okay? Is a person in need. All we know that he is a dying man and he's in great need. Well, a priest and a Levi, who were full-time servants of Yahweh, walk right by the man and offer no help. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and he bandaged up its wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took him two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I'll repay you. Now, I think you're aware that the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were a mixed race of Jew-Gentile. They worshipped God in the wrong manner. They worshipped God in the wrong place. And the Jews and the Samaritans were bitter enemies because of racial pride. We see this in John 4. 9. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She was shocked. She couldn't understand why Yeshua was talking to her in a friendly way. There was no rabbinic school that interpreted the term neighbor liberally enough to include the hated Samaritans. None of them. The scribes and the Pharisees considered the Samaritans as the most hated people on earth. They're the worst. Now our text tells us that this Samaritan felt compassion for the hurt man. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. The word compassion literally conveys the idea of a heart contracting convulsively. 
We might say his heart was squeezed by what he saw. Can you identify with that? He was overwhelmed by the consciousness of human need. The Greek word used here for compassion is splonknizomai. It's found only here in the Gospels. And every use of it, it always relates to need. It's the response of a human need. And it's like, you know, when, when I saw that picture of that boy laying on the beach dead, it, it makes your heart convulse. It breaks your heart. This same word is used three times in Mark of Yeshua's compassion for human need and suffering. In the Gospel, we see Christ moved to compassion in the sight of two blind men. So that he's, Yeshua is moved with compassion. He touches their eyes and He heals them. Or it's the sight of the leper. So that Yeshua moved with compassion, it says, touches the leper and heals him. It's usually the time that Yeshua saw the funeral procession of the son of the widow in the city of Nain. Remember, they're carrying his coffin out. He says he was the only son. And she's a widow. So basically, she's lost all her support. She's got no one to care for. So feeling compassion for the widow, he stops the funeral procession. He says, son, get up. Go take care of your mama. You know, we look at that miracle, and I think, I think we miss what's going on there. It's his love for the widow. It's his concern, his compassion, not for the dead man, but for the widow. And he says, get up, take care of your mother. It's the helplessness of men that generates the compassion of Christ. People, our God is a compassionate God. When Moses stood before the Lord on Mount Sinai, Yahweh revealed himself to Israel's leader. And the first adjective that Yahweh used to describe himself is compassionate. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Compassion belongs to the Lord our God. It's a vital aspect of His nature. So when we look at Christ, we should not be surprised by the compassion that He demonstrates as the Messiah. Because the Lord Yeshua the Christ is a compassionate God. Now remember, compassion means to be moved on the inside so that it compels you to take action on the outside. You can't be compassionate and not move. That's not compassion. It might be pity. It might be some kind of feeling. But compassion is making you move to do something about it. As Christians, as children of the Heavenly Father, we have a duty, a calling to imitate Christ, who is described in the Bible as compassionate. Colossians 3.12 So you, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved Christians, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's our calling. We're not to be indifferent to suffering. We'd be, we should be concerned to meet the needs of people. God wants us to be full of compassion, full of pity towards others. Alright, let's go back to the Samaritan. We need to understand here, to get this story, we have to understand the cultural background here. If a despised Samaritan had been found with a man who had been brutally murdered, it is very likely he'd have been charged with the crime. Okay? Because, hey, this guy's hated. we got to pin it on him. doesn't matter if he did it or not. And the good Samaritan, what you have to see here, was willing to risk his life 
to help this man. Vital to that story. K.E. Bailey in his book Peasant Eyes writes this. An American cultural equivalent would be a Plains Indian in 1875 walking into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy on his horse, checking into a room over the local saloon and staying the night to care for him. He says, any Indian so brave would be fortunate to get out of the city alive, even if he had saved the cowboy's life. You think people in that city would have wondered, did that Indian help that cowboy? What? No, they just, he, they see a wounded cowboy, they see an Indian, they want to kill the Indian. Same with the Samaritan. So at great risk to his own life, the Samaritan acted on his compassion and he helps the man in need. And Yeshua then asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Now, this verse is critical here. Yeshua asked, who is the neighbor? And most people, most commentators, most Bible teachers say, the neighbor is anyone in need. Is that true in this story? Is that right? Who are the three? He says, which of the three? We got a priest, we got a Levite, we got a Samaritan. That's the options. The, the, the wounded, beat up man is not one of the options. All right? Okay? So you got to stick with the options you have. According to the text, who's the neighbor? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Yeshua said to him, go and do the same. So who's the neighbor? It's the one who showed mercy. Who was that? Was it the priest or the Levite? Nope, it wasn't either one of them. It was the Samaritan. So the answer to the man's original question, listen, the guys, he knows he has to love his neighbor. Yeshua, and so he questions, well, who's my neighbor? I don't want to love people I don't have to. Okay, let's, let's get this narrowed down real good. And he's basically, Yeshua right in his face says, your neighbor is the Samaritan. That would have been shocking. That would have been painful. If you can think of the category of person that you hate the most, and don't be pious and say you don't hate anybody, but the one you hate the most, you know, the one you think is not really worthy to live, that's your Samaritan. That's who you're called to love. Yeshua was forcing this man to say, my most despised enemy is my neighbor. Wow. Yeshua says, go and love Samaritans. Man, that doesn't... I understand why people take this text and twist it around and make it say what it doesn't. It's a lot more comfortable. Okay? It's a lot more comfortable. The term neighbor is used in the Tanakh in a twofold manner. It's used in a wider and more general, a narrow and more specific. In the common usage, it includes anyone whom we may come in contact with. That's your neighbor. Having respect to your fellow man, basically, is what he's saying. It's used specifically in some cases for, you know, some a blood relative or someone close to you. But anyone who compares Scripture with Scripture should be clear on the Lord's meaning of neighbor. All right? And that's what we have to do. We have to look at the broad Scripture and find out who he's talking about. Let me show you a verse in Exodus 11:2. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. Who's the neighbor in this verse? Huh? The Egyptians. Okay. Do you think they like the Egyptians? Okay. They're slaves. All right. The Egyptians are the taskmasters. He says, go ask your neighbor. He could have used a different word here. 
Go ask your neighbor for these things. Wow, they're my neighbors? Well, the Bible uses the term strangers along with neighbors to represent those who we are to love. The same chapter in which we find the command to love our neighbor, we find this. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. All right, these are not Israelites. These are strangers. These are outsiders. These are refugees. Don't do them wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as native among you. Should be just like one of you. That's how you're supposed to treat him. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. You know why he says that at the end? He's telling you to do something. And he just let me remember. I'm Yahweh your God. You better do what I tell you. Okay. When Yahweh prohibited his people from bearing false witness against their neighbors. And when he forbade them from coveting the wife of a neighbor. The prohibition must be understood without limitation. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Okay, well, my neighbor is only this guy over here. So all these other people I can covet. No, it's, he's just saying, you don't covet anybody's wife, basically. Very broad. In the Tanakh, it's clear that Yahweh wants us to love our enemies. Look at Exodus 23, 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. That's, that's just innate in us, isn't it? You see something that you're, you're, this person you really don't like and you see some, an opportunity to help them and you just want to do it anyway, right? No, not at all. You probably want to shoot the animal or lead it astray so he'll never find it again, right? He says, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Help him out. That's how we're to treat our enemies. And I think that's clearly love, right? Look at Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. This is an incredible verse. Watch the rest of it. Or Yahweh will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. What? So it's, it's Yahweh's anger that's coming against your neighbor and you're excited about it. Well, I'm going to remove it then if you like it that much. Because that's not your response is supposed to be. That's a pretty incredible verse. You know, Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. I wouldn't have wrote that. If your enemy's hungry, I would have wrote too bad. If he's thirsty, good. If he comes too close to your food and water, get out your gun. But that's not what Scripture says. And how people can twist these verses to teach that you got to hate your enemy is beyond me. Nothing in the Bible about hatred. We to hate sin is the only thing we're to hate. And it seems like we got things backwards there. In Leviticus 19.18, it qualifies how we're to love our neighbor. It says we're to love our neighbor as yourself. That rules out any kind of superficial, any casual application of the word love. To love someone else as you love yourself, takes a great deal of care, a great deal of thinking. We all certainly take great care to love ourselves. The scribes and the Pharisees had both taken away from and added to the Scripture. They had limited the meaning of the word neighbor, which must be properly interpreted to mean every human being. They also added to the text of Scripture by saying that you were to hate your enemy. As opposed to their teaching, notice carefully 
what Yeshua taught. And that's why this teaching was so radical when he's teaching this. He says, but I say to you, this is very different what I'm saying than what you're hearing, okay? I say to you, love your enemies. What? How do you do that? He says, pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Examining this passage of Scripture will reveal the transformed behavior that Yeshua is after in each one of us. The point that Yeshua does not want us to act like the world. He wants us to manifest a behavior that is based upon a supernatural principle of divine life. Hating your enemy is not natural. It is supernatural. And basically, the only way you're going to do this is in dependence upon the Spirit of God. He's not calling us to act natural. We don't need to be told to act natural. We just do that. We need to be told to act supernaturally. As a result of our sinfulness, we tend to treat each other the way we get treated. There's the revenge principle. You know, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. That's the response of a man by nature. He desires that we live above the level of nature. And we live in trust of the power of the Holy Spirit. He desires to live us a a life that in our own strength we can never live. That's the whole thing. Christianity is supernatural. The Christian birth, birth into the Christian community is supernatural. And the life we live is called to be supernatural. The first thing he says is you got to love your enemies. That's a powerful, radical teaching about the inclusiveness of love. The kind of love that Yeshua advocates, embraces enemies. Now, to those listening to Yeshua that day, this must have seemed like an impossibility. I mean, this guy is off his rocker. How could anyone love his or her enemies? They don't invoke love. Yeshua, however, wanted to make a point that he considered our neighbor to include our enemies. In other words, nobody is outside the scope of our love. No one should be. We then are called to manifest love to all people. Now, our culture uses the word love to mean just about everything except what the Bible tells it to mean, says it means. And we, you know, we just have one word love and everything love. We love French fries. We love our dog. We love our wife. We love our God. Wow. It almost loses any kind of, you know, significance because everything is love. Well, the Greek language, which is rich in synonyms, has several different words. For our word love. In the Greek there are basically four different words for love. There's the noun storge. Which is love of family. This speaks of the love of family. It's used of the love of a parent for a child. Child for a parent. And there, there's the noun eros. This word is used to describe erotic love. Sensual love. The love you feel when you fall in love. Okay, It's a passionate attraction toward the opposite sex. This word's never used in the Bible. Then there's the word phileo, which is friendship. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Okay, that's where it comes from phileo. It's affection, friendship, a feeling of tender affection towards someone else. It's used to describe a man's closest and nearest and truest friends. But the word Yeshua uses in our text is agapao. It's a self-sacrificing love. 
agapao. The Greek word is rarely used in Greek literature prior to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word agape took on a special meaning. It's used by the New Testament writers to designate a volitional love as opposed to an emotional love. A self-sacrificial love, a love naturally expressed by divinity, but not so easily by humanity. It seems as though the early church took this word out of its obsoleteness and made it characteristic of the word love. This is what a Christian is to do. Agape is a love is a response to someone who's unworthy of love. And the concept is derived from the cross. God loved the world, and He gave His Son for it. That was a response to unworthy people, to sinners, to those who were His enemies. And that's agape. It's a love that proceeds from the nature of the lover rather than the worth of the person that's loved. It's a love that gives. A love that seeks the best of the object that is loved. Agape is a commitment of the will to cherish and uphold another person. It's the only word ever used to describe God's love. The only one. And every time the Lord asked Peter, do you love me, Peter? He said, Aphileo you. He wouldn't use agape. It's a decision you make. It's a commitment you've launched into to treat other person with concern, with care, with thoughtfulness, and to work for his or her best interests. You know, Yeshua never asked us to love our enemies in the same way we love our family or our dearest friends or our spouse member. We can't do that. We don't have those feelings for those people that are we don't like. The word he uses is different. A different kind of love. The one used by the Savior can be seen as synonymous with the word mercy. He's talking about a merciful spirit, tenderness of heart, which disposes a person to overlook injuries or treat an offender better than they deserve. While they're cursing, you're blessing. When they come with spite to persecute you, you don't respond as they do. You pray for them. You do good to them. That's the love Yeshua is talking about here. We're not called to live on the same level as the world. We're called to live on a level that is not only higher, but is impossible. The point of what Yeshua is saying is if you don't live in the power of the Spirit, you never can do any of this. He's asking us to do things in our own strength we can't do. The only possible we can really love our enemies and give ourselves to them sacrificially is through the power of the Spirit. So, as Christians, I think that our response to the Syrian refugee crisis should be clear. We are to love them. We are to show them mercy. I think the Bible is very clear on that. We're to help meet their needs. And yet more than half the nation's governors say they oppose letting Syrian refugees into their states. The majority of these Republican governors, I mean the majority of these governors are Republicans, and yet this is the party that most Christians align themselves with. They basically, these governors are saying, no mercy. Not our state. Take it somewhere else. Now, the announcement of these governors came after authorities revealed that at least one of the suspects believed to be involved in the Paris terror attacks entered Europe among the current wave of Syrian refugees. See, a terrorist got in with the Syrians. We're not letting any of the Syrians in. And so the reaction of many Christians in this country to Yeshua's words that we are to love our enemies is, but some of the refugees may be terrorists. Does Yeshua say, love your enemies, lest they're terrorists? 
I didn't find that exception clause in the Scripture. I didn't find it in there at all. But so many Christians think we can stick exception clauses in there because we feel like it. Yes, some of them may be terrorists. So do we neglect those in need to keep ourselves safe? That seems to be the number one priority among Christians nowadays. Safety. We've got to be safe. Really? Is that what our life's about? Comfortable? Being safe? Being secure? Let's remember that the Samaritan risked his life to help someone in need. He put his life on it. He could have looked and said, man, if I help him, I'm going to get killed. I'm a Samaritan. They don't like me. I can't go near this guy. Hope somebody else helps him out. Let me show you Paul's words to the Philippians. And people, I pray that by the Spirit of God we would get this. Paul says in Philippians 2.5, Have this attitude, phroneo is the Greek word there, in yourselves, which is also in Christ Yeshua. As believers, we are called to have the attitude of Christ. Now, in the context of this chapter, what's he talking about? This whole chapter is about the kenosis, the self-emptying of the Lord Yeshua to become a man, humble himself to become a man for the purpose of dying for others. So he says, have this attitude in yourself. If we back up in the context of verse 3 and 4, it helps us understand what he's talking about. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You know, if Christians did this, we'd be able to have a great impact on the world. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. We know you're going to do that, but don't just do that. But also for the interest of others. The attitude we are to have is Christ's attitude of self-sacrificing humility for the needs of others. Now, in the end of chapter 2, after Paul gives us the illustration of Christ and His humility and His sacrificing to go to the cross. He gives us an illustration about Timothy and how Timothy was a sacrificial man, you know, doing what others wouldn't do. And then he talks about a man called Epaphroditus. And he uses Epaphroditus as an example of a man who lived a sacrificial life for other people, to minister to others' needs. And so he's giving these examples in Philippians because this is what he's calling us to have the mind of Christ. These men had the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, 29 and 30 says, Receive him, Epaphrodites then, as the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now the word work here is ergon, meaning toil, effort. And notice that the work here is done of Christ. He's serving Christ. Now, the word risking here is from the Greek word parabole. It's a gambling term. It means to throw down a stake to roll the dice. Basically, it's saying he risked his life as a gambler would take risk for a possible gain. He hazarded his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now, he's not saying that as a rebuke. He's saying Epaphroditus is here. He can do what you can't do because you're not here. But he's risking his life to do it. Epaphroditus loved the Philippians, who he was representing, and he loved Paul, who he was ministering to, so much that he almost lost his life pouring out it in sacrificial service to meet needs. Can you fathom that in the Christian life? People living to the point of risking their own life to help other people out. In the early days 
of the early church, there was an association of men and women called Perbolani, which means the gamblers. It was their aim to visit the prisoners and the sick, especially those who were ill with dangerous and infectious diseases. In AD 252, plague broke out in Carthage, and the heathen threw out the bodies of the dead out and fled the city in terror. Cyprian, who was the Christian bishop, gathered his congregation together and set them to burying the dead and nursing the sick in the plague-stricken city. By doing so, they saved the city at risk of their own lives from the destruction and desolation. You know, there really should be in the Christian an almost reckless courage which makes him ready to gamble with his life to serve Christ and man. Because you know what, believer? You won't die prematurely. So go ahead and take some risk. You're not, you know, we're Calvinistic, okay? We believe God is sovereign. Now, if you're Arminian, you might want to argue with this point. You might want to try to preserve your own life. But we know God's in control, okay? So we're not going to, you know, we're not going out any sooner than we need to go. So you might as well go out in a blaze of glory, all right? Doing what you can do for the glory of God. Epaphroditus risked it all. These early Christians went into plague-stricken cities at the risk of their life, to minister to people. You know, that's why in the early days they looked at Christians and they had an affection. They said, these people are incredible. There's something about them. They had a testimony. We don't have a testimony today. We have a testimony being money, hungry, you know, people who just want to twist people's minds and you know, put them under rules. He risked it all to minister to others. He modeled the kenosis of Christ. He emptied himself. What are you willing to risk to meet other people's needs? What are you willing to risk? We don't like to take risks. We don't want to help someone in trouble because we're afraid we might get hurt if we do that. We might get killed. We don't want to get involved. You know, most of us do the opposite of Epaphroditus. We regard our lives as a thing so precious that we guard it at all costs. This is not the attitude of Christ. In verse 8 said, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of a cross. Why did he do that? For others. The Bible teaches that we're to give up our lives in order to save them. Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, the terrorists. They're unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body and Gehenna. We're not to fear people because they really can't hurt us. We're only to fear God. We're not to selfishly guard our lives. We're to give them away in ministry to others. Look at 1 John. It's an incredibly convicting passage. We know love by this. That He laid down His life for us. All right, Talking about Christ on the cross, that's how we know what love is. It's self-sacrificial. He laid down His life for us. And He says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You ought to do it. Now, in most cases, we don't have an opportunity to lay down our lives. But when we do, we're supposed to be willing to take a risk. Now, watch what he says. But whoso have this world's goods. You think America could fit into that category? I mean, people, we are so overindulgent. It isn't funny. You know, we say, we can't help these Syrian refugees. Because our houses are only... Two or three thousand square feet. 
I mean, where, where, where we put these people that are used to living in a, you know, 100 foot square space? Now, most of us have rooms in our house we don't ever go in. But, you know, to help somebody else out? No, we can't do that. Food. Some of these people, they're, you know, they left their home and they grabbed stuff and they walked. And they're walking and when they get tired, they lay down on the ground and they sleep. And they beg and they scrape to try to get food to get their kids alive to get where they're going. And they're being held off at every, you know, people are afraid, they're scared, they're putting up fences. These people are risking their lives to get over them, get through them. Whoso has the world's good? I tell you, if anybody that fits America, we got more, we got so much abundance that it's actually sickening. And you see your brother have need, and you close up his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? He said, how can you say that you love when you, you don't act? Little children, let's not love with word or tongue, but indeed in truth. We're good at, we're good at talking about it. You know, following Christ's example, we should be willing to lay down our lives to meet the needs of others. We gotta stop being afraid, people. We gotta stop surviving and start thriving, okay? We are invincible in the will of God. We're not gonna get hurt. Not anything that's gonna damage eternity, I'll tell you that. Epaphroditus is an example to us all. He's the loving gambler, risking it all to minister to the needs of others. That's all he wanted to do. Put it all out there to help. We selfishly clutch life. We guard our own interests when the mind of Christ is to be selfless and sacrificial. This is what Yahweh calls us to, people. Paul uses Epaphroditus as an example of having the attitude of Christ. Something that we are all called to have. have. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Yeshua. Now, I know this is uncomfortable to hear. But I'll tell you, believer, if we're going to impact our society, if we're going to be effective in our evangelism, we need to quit selfishly guarding our lives and start taking some risks in order to meet the needs of others. We want to share Christianity. We want to help these people. If they're Muslims, they need to hear the truth. Because the truth, the scripture says, will set you free. And we hear all the time of Muslims coming to Christ. But they do that when they meet genuine Christians who show them what the love of God is all about. They're not interested in, you know, just come to our church on Sunday for an hour of teaching. That's not Christianity. That's not going to have a big effect on their lives. But when we demonstrate a, a love that is beyond this world, two people, it gets their attention. I just, I had another message that I was working on for this week, but after conversations with several people calling me and just asking me, what are we going to do about this? You know, what, what should we feel? What, what do we think about this? I just felt like I need to address this issue. We need to talk about this. And to me, people, I don't mean this as an insult, but to me, this is Christianity 101. This is bottom line. You know, we're called to love. Any, any Christian don't know that? We might not know we're called to live sacrificially and put our lives at risk. Many Christians don't want to even think about that, but it's in the text, okay? It's there. We see it as an example. We're called to that example. So what does it mean to us personally? I don't know. I don't know because it depends on what our country's going to do. If our country doesn't allow these people in there, we can't do much to help them. But if they do allow them in, they're going to need something. 
You know, they're going to need help. They're going to need assistance, getting assimilated into our culture. You know, help them, you know, get a school or learn things or get jobs or whatever. You say, well, we just don't, you know, we got, you know, always say, we have so many people here that need help. We do. We can help them too. But I'll tell you, our resources are incredible. They are incredible. We could take just about any one of our houses and take it over there and they could have six or seven families living in it very comfortably. All right, I'm done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, for your word. It does cut like a two-edged sword. Father, I think we really like being comfortable. I want comfortable Christianity. I want to love you, but I don't want it to cost me anything. Lord, I pray you'd shake us out of this. Father, we got to lead the revival in this country. We need to set the pace. We need to be out front calling people to follow us as we follow you, Lord. Give us a heart, Lord, of compassion. May our heart convulse that human need, Lord. Not being cold and calculated, but reaching out to help those in need. That we may demonstrate your heart to them, Lord. Strengthen us, Lord, to serve you. It could get ugly in this country, Lord. I pray we continually hold up the torch of the gospel of Yeshua the Christ. Thank you for your love for us, Lord. Amen. Mm -hmm.